Now, uh, here's the Marxist scenario for revolution as thought out by Marx himself. Uh, there would be some kind of seizure of power. Either it would be a force, forcible seizure of power by resorting to the barricades, or it would be a parliamentary constitutional reform uh, followed by the suppression of all counter-revolutionary dissidents, you see. They, like they would change the Constitution of the United States by a kind of a, a plebiscite, and uh, in the process they would abolish the, uh, the private ownership of the means of production. It would be either one or the other. But at any rate, force would be eventually used. This would be followed by what Marx calls the dictatorship of the proletariat. That is to say, the proletariat now guides the country for some time. He wouldn't specify the time. Uh, sometimes he said for many years, and sometimes he said for a few weeks. Uh, so, uh, you see, he refused to answer. He didn't have a question period, let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, I might mention he never uh, uh, would deign to answer the question of how it was possible to calculate prices under socialism. Uh, he was vaguely aware uh, of that problem. He called the, the question unscientific. Uh, in other words, we'll solve that problem when we get to it. This is the basic dialectical approach to history. We'll solve that problem when we get to it. So the important thing is really to incite people to revolution, and then we overthrow everything and we look around us and see what we've got. Now, the, uh, we come to the stage immediately after the means of production have become socialized. This stage lies between capitalism and communism, and it is marked by the revolutionary transformation of capitalism gradually into communism. This transitional period we will call socialism, following the general practice of contemporary Marxist scholars. So it goes capitalism, succeeded by the stage of socialism, succeeded by the stage of communism. Marx used a slightly different terminology. The stage of socialism he called the first phase of communism uh, and the phase of what we're going to call communism he called the higher phase of communism. But I'm following the present, uh, the present uh, Marxist terminology. Uh, socialism is the name of society as a whole during this period but is often used to refer to the economic system only. The corresponding political structure we call the dictatorship of the proletariat. Let us look at socialism first as an economic system. Now here I am following the remarks uh, of Marx uh, himself uh, in uh, his uh, uh, work called The Critique of the Gotha Program. The Critique of the Gotha Program, which came out in the 1870s and following the general spirit of what he was planning. The means of production are owned and controlled by the state. Each individual works for the state and receives in return a money wage, a money wage. The amount of this wage is determined in the following manner. 
First, the total number of hours the worker has worked is determined. Secondly, the economic value of these hours is determined, you don't have to take all this down, uh, is determined by adding up all the hours worked by all the workers during the wage period in question, say a week, dividing the gross product by those hours, thereby getting units of the gross product which determine his share of the units. In other words, he gets according to his work, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his work. That's the motto of socialism as opposed to the higher stage of communism. This is his gross wage, however. This is only his gross wage. So you know what, a, what your gross salary is like. From this, certain deductions are made. Uh, for replacement of the means of production, costs for expansion of production, general costs of administration, accident insurance, funds for education, health, and for those unable to work. Modern Marxists have added cultural services and museums and parks and so on. After all such deductions have been made, the individual receives his individual wage in money. He may use this money in buying and selling all commodities except the means of production. Marx tells us that under socialism, uh, although there is a collectivistic ownership of the means of production, still in the exchange of consumer commodities, the principles of bourgeois right prevail. In other words, uh, uh, I might have a right to this picture, you see, uh, provided I didn't put it to work in some way, uh, uh, aging scotch or something like that. Now, uh, wage labor is preserved in the sense that the worker receives a quantity of money in return for a quantity of labor. But please notice the worker is no longer free, even in the sense that this is a criticism of my own. He's no longer free even in the sense that Marx admits that he's free in capitalist society. For now there's only one employer, the state, who is gouging out the surplus value. So the worker has no choice among employers. Of course, the answer the Marxists give is that all the surplus value is actually applied to the public interest, the benefits of the workers, and so on. Whatever element of force in the Marxist sense existed under capitalism is retained under socialism. The worker must work or starve, with the added bonus of having only one employer to choose from. The admission of a contemporary Marxist economist, Ernest Mandel, uh, are, are relevant here. Ernest Mandel is a leading Trotskyist economist. Uh, and he is actually the head of the Fourth International, which is the organization of Trotskyists throughout the world. Now listen to what he says about the states, which I am calling socialism. Under socialism, quote, the struggle of all against all to appropriate a bigger proportion of currency tokens will inevitably persist. So long as the exercise of certain social functions makes it easier to appropriate comparatively scarce goods and services, it is inevitable 
that the phenomena of careerism, nepotism, corruption, servility towards superiors, and an autocratic attitude toward inferiors will remain widespread. There is still universal mercenariness. The egoistic mentality of the old Adam will be preserved under socialism. It will not be a capitalist survival, but the everyday reality of distribution, ration by money. And so you see that Marxists are not content with socialism because it is still too selfish. And so we move on to their real ideal, which is communism, the final stage of man's economic development. We have seen that in the stage of socialism, according to Marx, if you read it, the Communist Manifesto, there will be a huge expansion of the productive forces and therewith of the social product. Socialism's mighty achievements in the economic field will make possible the following three stupendous developments. One, the withering away of the exchange economy. Two, the withering away of the state. And three, the withering away of the division of labor. Let us see how each of these processes can and must occur according to Marxist theory. Under capitalism and socialism, the means of distribution was exchange. Was exchange. A given good or service was exchanged for a price. Under socialism, the typical exchange is uh, conducted between the individual and the state. The individual gives his labor to the state, receiving in exchange a wage, just as in the present Soviet Union. He then uses the wage to buy commodities from the state. As socialism develops, however, there occurs the withering away of the exchange economy. How does this take place? Uh, well, Wages are defined by the following characteristics, according to Marxist economists. The employer, first, the employer pays the worker a money price in exchange for a quantity of labor power. Secondly, the price is strictly proportional to the quantity of labor power measured in hours. Third, the sale is forced upon the seller. This is in socialism as well as in capitalism. That is upon the worker because the wage is needed by him to purchase the consumer goods to keep him alive. According to Marx's theory, a wage then has these three characteristics both under capitalism and under socialism. Wages are to be contrasted with what they call social dividends. Social dividends are payments by society to the individual. Payments not given in proportion to a contribution of his. Examples are police and fire services, bridges, sports stadia, education, museums, public libraries. These developed under late capitalism in its mixed or welfare state phase. And they will, of course, be enormously expanded under socialism with its greater total gross national product. Now, such services and goods are free to the individual in the sense that he does not have to buy them in exchange transactions, but they are given to him at a cost to society, and this cost is measured in terms of available labor time 
of all citizens. Distribution of social dividends is according to need. The needs are to be satisfied merely because they exist regardless of any contribution of the individual, regardless of any earning, regardless of any merit or lack of merit on the part of the individual. And we have many such processes in our present welfare state. You just need something and you go get it. A need is a claim. Now, this is growing, you see, under the, the magnificent economic achievements of socialism. So they have more and more goods until finally they have so many they couldn't really sell. An eloquent expression of this doctrine is to be found in Lewis Mumford's book called Technics and Civilization, M-U-M-F-O-R-D, Technics and Civilization. Quote, the claim to a livelihood rests upon the fact that like the child in the family, like the child in the family, one is a member of a community. The energy, the technical knowledge, the social heritage of a community belong equally to every member of it. Since in the large, the individual contributions and differences are completely insignificant. Here and there we have established the beginnings of a basic communism in the provision of education and books. There is no rational reason for stopping short any point this side of a normal standard of consumption. Such a basis has no relation to individual capacities and virtues. We give at least a minimum of food and shelter and medical attention to criminals who have presumably behaved against the interests of society. Why then should we deny them to the lazy and the stubborn? The classic name for such a universal system of distributing the essential means of life is described by Plato long before Marx. I'm still quoting Mumford. This is communism. As used here, as used here, it does not imply a slavish imitation of the political methods and institutions of Soviet Russia, however admirable Soviet courage and discipline may be, unquote. There. According to Marxist theorists, the communist ideal of distribution is not the present is not the present way in which most public goods and services are doled out, uh, like welfare and things like that. For most of the latter, that is welfare, uh, they dole out in a miserly way using means tests and other indignities. No, the ideal of social dividend distribution is to be found in public libraries where you can get any book you want just by proving you are a member of the community and need the book. Any book you want merely by saying that you need it. Now just extend this to all goods and services. The process of extension that actually occurred is amazing if you really think of it. The public library was an established institution even under 80% laissez-faire capitalism and such a library was the British Museum. Now into the library comes a bearded man who presents his cards and gets any book he wants. He uses them to produce a vast ideological system 
ostensibly proving that after passing through oceans of blood, we can have a total system in which all goods and services can be distributed on the basis of a statement of need. To bring about the transition from the exchange system of distribution to the need system, socialist society must do the following two things. One, it must gradually move more and more goods and services from the wage price or exchange system to the social dividend system. See that? More products go over from the commodity exchange system to the social dividend system. Two, the social dividend system itself must be made more and more to conform to the criterion of need rather than means tests. It must become less and less like the health service system and more and more like the public library system. Now, the gradual transfer of goods and services from the exchange to the social dividend system should be accomplished in the following way. Goods and services should be transferred one by one as they become inelastic to price or income level. In other words, the demand for them does not increase or, de or decrease in response to price or income level. As Oscar, La Oscar Lange, L-A-N-G-E, and Fred Taylor put it in their book on the economic theory of socialism, quote, if the price of such a commodity is below and the consumer's income is above a certain level, the commodity is treated by the consumer as if it were a free good. Would a decline in the price of soap to zero induce well-to-do people to be much more liberal in its use? If a part of the commodities and services is distributed by free sharing, the price system needs to be confined uh, only to the rest of them. It is quite conceivable that as wealth increases, the free sharing sector increases, and an increasing number of commodities are distributed by free sharing until finally all the prime necessaries of life are provided for in this way, the distribution by the price system being confined to better, better uh, things and luxuries. Thus Marx's stage of communism may be gradually approached. Now this phenomenon is also called by Marxists the withering away of political economy. This involves the dying out of all commodity production, therewith of all prices, and since labor is a commodity of wages. Modern Marxists see this as the result of the gradual expansion of the social dividend section of the economy at the price of the commodity system. With the withering away of the commodity economy will come as a corollary the withering away of economic insecurity. Although there will be a much greater individual ownership of consumer goods, attachment to these will be greatly lengthened. It'll be like table salt, you see. You won't have a lot of people grabbing for the table salt. You don't have it now, and you won't have people grabbing for commodities uh, as, we, as we soar or as we hang glide into uh, 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 pure communism. <laughs> after, after all scarcity will have shrunk after that, all scarcity will have shrunk to the vanishing point. So you see, this is the withering away of scarcity, too. They're really hooked, they're really hooked on this withering away point. 
Now at last will disappear what Mandel calls, quote, the frenzied struggle of all against all, which is egoism. Now notice the Marxist interpretation of egoism. It is Hobbesianism. That's what it is. It's Hobbes' concept of uh, every man is a wolf to every man. Grabbing everything we can by force, or in a more popular phrase, dog eat dog. And that's what they want to abolish. Now, since there is no need to solve the problem of insecurity by grabbing it, you say we don't need it anymore, there is no longer any need for the initiation of force, and likewise no need for retaliatory force. Money bags and the mugger will both have disappeared. Since force is absent, there is no more need for the state. The abolition of the state was thus among Marx's ultimate aims. Uh, this aim has been endorsed over and over again by every succeeding statement of communist aims up through the last major statement of the program of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1961. Now, uh, in a way, their final ideal is like that of anarchism, you see, since there will be no state. As Lenin put it in the State and Revolution, quote, we do not at all disagree with the anarchists on the question of the abolition of the state as a name. We maintain that to achieve this aim, we must temporarily make use of the instruments, resources, and methods of the state power against the exploiters, unquote. The whole purpose of the socialist state, then, a state that is admitted to be a totalitarian tyranny, they, they, they practically admit it except in words. The whole purpose of this totalitarian state is to make possible the conditions of abundance which will do away with the necessity of any state whatsoever. Why? Because the state is a policeman, the policeman's task is to keep order by force. But all force is based on the sense of insecurity. He who is secure does not resort to force. All insecurity, including even psychological insecurity, including even psychological insecurity, is reducible to economic insecurity. As the social service dividend, that is guaranteed existence, increases, the necessity, and I emphasize in Marx's terminology, the necessity of initiating force decreases. You don't have to mug anybody anymore. As the necessity of initiating force decreases, so does the necessity of retaliatory force, which retaliatory force the Marxists call, quote, oppression, unquote. And with it withers away the legal forms of oppression, otherwise known as the state QED. Finally comes the abolition of the division of labor. I have already quoted Marx's statement of his ideal of work uh, in the German ideology, quote, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind without ever becoming a hunter, a fisherman, a cowherd, or a critic, unquote. Marx, of course, never worked out how this was to be accomplished any more than he worked out how prices were to be calculated in a socialist economy. Questions like these he regarded as, quote, unscientific, unquote. 
Remember that Hegel regarded the detailed prediction of future developments in the dialectic as impossible. Marx got this from Hegel. Modern Western Marxists of the so-called humanist variety, like Eric Fromm and people like that, you see the kind of soft-headed and soft-hearted Marxists, they have, in, they have indulged in a variety of speculations on this topic. They have pointed to the growth of automation as the means of producing for basic needs, the growth of hobbies and so forth. More and more workers are turning part of their leisure time over to growing flowers, making wooden furniture and toys, bird watching, weightlifting, transcendental meditation, and so on. Ultimately comes, therefore, you see, more and more everything, work is transformed into hobbies uh, with the help of automation, according to, the, uh, according to these humanist Marxists. Ultimately comes the abolition of the division of labor between manual and, uh, and uh, white-collar workers. Every worker can become an intellectual through universal free education, and every intellectual will be freed from the anguish of never seeing his dreams come true. The gulf between theory and practice vanishes. Now, history has now come full circle. History has, here's where I am now, history has come full circle. We started with the primitive communism in which everyone was singing around the fire or squatting in the igloo, sharing everything, and that means everything in the primitive society. There was no alienation, only tribal warmth. Outside, of course, the igloo was different. There was no envy. There was little to go around. Everything to everything, and that means everything, smelled of seal oil. There was no state. The Eskimos have no state. Of course, they do have blood feuds that are really something that you didn't mention that. Then came, then came inventions. Then came inventions which led to the division of labor, to private property, and to exploitation. There was a succession of exploitative societies. The Asiatic mode of production, slavery, feudalism, capitalism. No mode of production was as successful as capitalism. As Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, their tribute to capitalism, quote, the bourgeoisie during its rule of scarce 100 years has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor, unquote. Capitalism awakened the productive forces of social labor. How? By extorting surplus value on an unprecedented scale. And so increasing surplus value is the road to productivity. But wait a minute. Extorting surplus value in an environment of freedom and competition leads to chaos, inefficiency, and breakdown, as we can all see when we look around us. So capitalism wipes itself out. Socialism comes to the helm. Freedom is abolished. 
an all-powerful state takes over and takes over the goods which are here. This all-powerful state proceeds to generate surplus value much more efficiently. The result is an enormous surplus which makes possible the return to communism, not to primitive communism, since the problem of scarcity has now been solved. Now we, have, we can bring everything into the igloo, so to speak, uh, uh, cards and, uh, and uh, uh, all the materials for cookouts and so on. The comparisons and the contrasts with primitive communism may now be summarized dialectically. Thesis, scarcity communism, otherwise known as primitive communism. A sharing economy, production for use rather than exchange, no state, no alienation, life at a primitive level, level, psychological tribalism. Antithesis, the exchange economy, production for profit, presence of the state, alienation, psychological egoism, individualism, and a trembling insecurity. Production of a surplus product which becomes enormous under capitalism. The goods are here. Socialism centralizes and streamlines this system and produces even more goods because everything is now organized on a Prussian basis, you see, not only in the factory but between factories. Synthesis, the communism of abundance, a tremendous colossal surplus product already produced by socialism, production for use, absence of the state, no alienation, all your salt shots, the, the comforts of civilization, but life at a psychologically tribal level once again, uh, and the disappearance of psychological insecurity. The thesis and the antithesis have been aufgehoben. They have been taken up into the synthesis, the contradictions preserved yet canceled. At last, individuals will become fully socialized again as they were in the primitive tribe. As Marx says in his Grundrisse, 1857, the private individual will become the social individual. Man will no longer have two separate lives, the private life and the public life as a citizen. Everything will become public. The distinction between private and public life will vanish. Man will become reunited with his species essence. His abstract godlike essence, which is communal, will become his existence, the conditions of his daily life. Man's existence will be identical with his essence. Since this is true only of God, the ontological argument, man will be God. In the words of Trotsky, now, here are his exact words, Leon Trotsky, a man of some uh, practicality, uh, quote, man will become immeasurably stronger, wiser, and subtler. His body will become more harmonized, his movements more rhythmic, his voice more musical. The forms of life will become dynamically dramatic. The average 
type will rise to the heights of an Aristotle or a Marx. And above this ridge, new peaks will rise. These, ladies and gentlemen, in the word, if the word, are the words of the creator of the Red Army. Uh, you have the ultimate statement here of the Marxist dream. Now, it would be a misunderstanding to think that revolutionary uh, socialism came into existence by uh, people just advocating uh, certain things uh, and then gathering followers. Uh, what Marx did was to spread the doctrine that the revolution was inevitable. And this gave people a sense of meaning in life. They could either get on the wagon of history or fall off the wagon and lose all personal significance, lose all meaning uh, from their lives. Now, there were, uh, Marx uh, started a revolutionary movement by infiltrating him into himself into societies already formed. There was the first international. During its short life from 1864 to 1876, it became a major means of spreading Marxist doctrine on the continent to the extent that Marxism became the predominant ideology of the emerging continental labor movement. Eventually, by 1876, Marx uh, like Samson, he, he destroyed the first international because he was afraid that the anarchists under the leadership of Bakunin might ultimately regain their power and take it away from him. So he stood up in a meeting and made the motion that the headquarters of the international be transferred to New York. And uh, in New York, absolutely nobody was interested even in having meetings. Uh, now... Uh, uh, finally, there came along the uh, Second International, which was founded after Marx's death uh, uh, in 1889. And this Second International was based upon a more fundamentally, upon uh, more peaceful practices. It concentrated on getting uh, higher wages and shorter hours, and it uh, concentrated essentially on union aims and on welfare aims. But at the same time, it retained a revolutionary ideology. It did not abandon orthodox Marxism, nor would it accept the actual revisionistic doctrine of the leader of the revisionists, of the evolutionary socialist, Edward Bernstein. Moreover, it remained internationalistic and pacifistic in its formal commitment. Uh, in the Stuttgart Statement of 1907, it proclaimed it was the duty of all socialists to oppose any war that might break out. Socialist deputies in the various national parliaments pledged themselves to vote against war credits for their various governments uh, in the event of an outbreak of war. In 1914, general war broke out. The socialist deputies in each country patriotically voted the war credits for their own countries. And this was the nemesis of moderate Marxism and the end of the Second International. Uh, these uh, moderate uh, uh, Marxists were, as I said, actually committed to a revolutionary doctrine. And later on, 
after the First World War, uh, they were laying plans for revolution continually and trying to get revolutions going in such places as uh, Vienna and Budapest and so on. And sometimes they even seized power for a few months. Uh, but, uh, well, to give you an example of uh, the situation in, in Vienna, after the, first wor after the First World War, the socialist leaders were committed to revolution, but they didn't have the heart for it. They kept announcing it was going to happen. They kept announcing it was going to happen until finally Sigmund Freud uh, made uh, his characteristic, a characteristic comment. In case of rain, the revolution will be held indoors. Uh, so you see, these, mo these moderate socialists uh, were really not getting anywhere. Now, into the crisis caused by the failure of the Second International came Lenin. 1870 to 1924. I think I told a great many of you how after lecturing on the Russian Revolution, I found students in my own college thought I was talking about John Lennon. And the leader of the Bolsheviks, a radical faction that had split off from the Russian Socialist Party. From Switzerland, this is 1914 now, Lenin is bringing into action, and it's to Lenin, really, that we must trace all our external troubles from a military point of view. He proclaimed from Switzerland, from some cafe, that the pro-war socialists of Europe had betrayed the international working class in the interests of a war that was imperialist on both sides. He declared that the Second International was dead, and he called for a new international uh, developed on uh, a completely different uh, program. And he formulated a completely new doctrine of the party. Now, I'm turning over pages because I'm going to have to admit, omit his theory of imperialism. The new doctrine of the party was this. You remember that Marx had visualized, he, he said, you will remember that Marx had visualized the Communist Party as a loosely structured democratic organization. Such a party, however, he said, will never lead the workers to revolution because there is no guarantee that the party of the workers will have any higher understanding or any greater will than the workers themselves have, which is nil. History has shown that workers taken by themselves never develop a class consciousness above the level of trade unionism or indeed a type of activism above that level. What kind of revolutionary party is this which has open and fluctuating membership, no particular requirements beyond the payment of dues, a free press, continual debate, the vast waste of energy in having to settle the same point again and again? What we need is an organization of dedicated revolutionaries capable of conducting an ongoing political structure with energy, with toughness, with competence, with continuity. This means the party must have a core of leaders whose profession, whose profession is revolutionary work. That means they mustn't have jobs in factories, you see. That their profession must be revolutionary work. 
This in turn means that, quote, all distinctions between workers and intellectuals must be broken down, unquote. A professional revolutionary must not spend his whole day working in the factory. He must be supported by party dues. He must be thoroughly schooled. All party functions must be concentrated in the hands of the core of leaders. Further, membership in the party itself must be limited to active, disciplined members of pure ideology. All publications must be under party control. There must be throughout the party a rigorous and truly iron discipline which periodically cleanses deviationists. Democratic centralism is to prevail. Free speech prior to all decisions, closed ranks after decisions. Now his rules of, of tactics for the party as a whole. This is important because it, you see it helps you to understand the modern communist movement with a capital C. Here are his rules of tactics in brief quotes. Quote, to take advantage of even the smallest opportunity of winning an ally, even though this ally is temporary, vacillating, unstable, unreliable, and conditional. Those who do not understand this reveal a failure to understand even the smallest grain of Marxism. If you are unable to adapt yourself, if you are unwilling to crawl on your belly through the mud, you are not a revolutionary, but a chatterbox, unquote. Meanwhile, even the smallest rift among our opponents, the smallest conflict of interest among the capitalists is to be exploited. And you remember his later remark, the capitalists will even sell you the rope to hang them with. Uh, two, compromise every issue other than the principle of the success of the revolution. Three, infiltrate all organizations and institutions, even the most reactionary. Patiently carry on agitation and propaganda from within them, resorting to, quote, illegal methods, evasions, and subterfuges, unquote. Work within bourgeois parliaments until the time comes to do away with the parliament. Use the most rapid and brusque alterations of tactics. Now advancing, now retreating, now allied with one group, now with their enemies. Talk to working people in their own language. Formulate party policies in terms of the experience of the masses and their moral values. Finally, it is not enough to be a revolutionary or a communist in general. You must be able at each particular moment to find the particular link in the chain which you must grasp with all your might and hold the whole chain and prepare finally for the transition, prepare firmly for the transition to the next link. And Lenin adds then one more basic principle, quote, at all costs retain moral superiority, that is, a sense of consistency and knowing what's going on, knowing what you're doing, uh, dedication, zeal above all. This party, the Communist Party, did not, did not just remain an ideal in the mind of Lenin. Uh, Lenin created the party, and with the party he took over a weak and divided Russian government uh, in a swift single strike. 
Years of terror followed as Lenin and his associates built the first totalitarian state in history, state which both Mussolini, for which both Mussolini and Hitler declared their admiration. A totalitarian state is more than an absolute state. It is a state in which there is a single monolithic ideology to which all must conform, in which the means of education and propaganda and all cultural activities uh, are in the hands of the government. Now, contrary to the expectations of both Marx and Lenin, no Marxist revolution ever took place in any industrial ad industrially advanced country. In the classical sense that first capitalism passed into a deep economic crisis and then the workers seized power. To be sure, some industrially advanced countries such as Czechoslovakia turned communist, but this was by conquest. As for the backward countries themselves, Marxists generally expected that they would pass first through capitalism and then uh, finally to socialism. Uh, but that did not happen uh, in that way. And so therefore their dogma was contradicted by the actual turn of events. You remember how the Chinese communists first unite, united themselves with Chiang Kai-shek and they tried to help build some capitalism in China so they could overthrow it. And finally they realized this wasn't going to work that way. Now we come to the question which I promised in the, uh, in the uh, blurb, in the brochure, uh, uh, to try to answer. Does Marxism-Leninism, Marxism-Leninism, constitute a deviation from the fundamental theoretical position of Marx? People who ask this question are usually asking whether we cannot have Marxism without totalitarianism. That's what your teacher means. Uh, that is, can we have, not this teacher, your teachers in uh, colleges and universities, can we have a society founded on Marxist principles without totalitarianism? Can we work towards such a society without a reign of terror? They usually want to think that what they call a, quote, humanistic, quote, unquote, democratic, pluralistic type of Marxism is at least consistent with Marx's basic intentions and is possible to establish. I'm thinking of people like the late Eric Frum. My answer is unequivocally no. There is no fundamental deviation. The terror of Marxism derives from its so-called humanism. So far is it from being inconsistent with the humanism or a deviation from it. Consider the following points. One, essential to all Marxism is the doctrine of the communal nature of man with its corollary that the individual who deviates from this is committing a basic sin against human solidarity, a sin against the human race. Two, essential to all Marxism is historical materialism with its distinction of base and superstructure and its doctrine of class consciousness. Three, deriving from these two doctrines is the view that the collective mind is the arbiter of thought, that is, group think and polylogism, that is the doctrine that knowledge 
uh, in logic vary according to economic systems. Four, essential is the idea that production for use is truly human and production for profit is alienating and inhuman. Even for even production for exchange commodity production under socialism is somehow inhuman and alienating. Five, essential is the idea that the division of labor is somehow inhuman. That is what Marxist humanism is. Six, following from these comes Marx's radical critique that is his rejection of all civilization known up to this point. This too is Marxist humanism. Seven, then there is the idea that a need is a claim and that the concept of earning must ultimately be abolished. Eight, essential is the idea that private property and the means of production must be abolished. Whatever Marxists may say, however they may protest, this inevitably means totalitarianism. I refer you to the concise and brilliant demonstration of this in the last chapter of George Reisman's book, The Government Against the Economy, the chapter called The Tyranny of Socialism, which certainly needs no commendation from me, but I'll quote the words of Friedrich von Hayek, the Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize laureate in economics, for 1975, who said, quote, I know no other place where the crucial issues are explained as clearly and convincingly as in this book, unquote. Ninth point, essential to Marxism is the view that some group of intellectuals understand what is best for everyone and should somehow impose that view by force. Of course, this is the old heritage of Platonism. Ten, essential to Marxism is the view that some other class should serve as the lever of social change to dismantle capitalism. Once, of course, their consciousness is raised by the intellectual elite, the industrial workers, if not the industrial workers, then the peasants of the third world countries. If not them, then oppressed races or other ethnic groups. If not them, in the words of Herbert Marcuse, quote, the alienated youth of the affluent society, unquote. All this so-called humanism calls for violence and terror. It is the humanism itself that calls for the violence and terror because the humanism is inhuman. Does Marxism and Leninism constitute a deviation from Marxism? Yes, in all sorts of detail. Where and when the revolution will occur? Will it be on 7th Avenue or on 52nd Street or whatnot? Where and when uh, uh, and, and who shall man the barricades and so on? In fundamentals, no. We now conclude our survey of Marxism. I wish to remind you of the basic facts with which we started in our first lecture. I'm flashing back. This is my flashback here, uh, wherever it is. We're flashing back uh, to uh, the first lecture. Uh, Marxism is the official ruling ideology of a group of totalitarian states around the world a group that includes one world power to which many of the others are subordinate. 
Marxism is the ruling ideology of revolutionary groups, mainly in guerrilla armies in undeveloped countries that have not yet accepted Marxism. Marxism is a subculture in the industrial countries of the capitalist world. This subculture centers in the universities and is profoundly influential in cultural and political life generally, often in movements that do not even know they are being influenced by Marxism. Also in the free world, Marxism is represented by political groups that are frankly Marxist, sometimes by parliamentary parties and so on, some of them squabbling among themselves. It is crucially important to gain an accurate understanding of this ideology if our defense of our own freedoms and rights, if indeed our defense of modern civilization is going to be effective. These lectures were designed as a contribution to that aim. We asked, what is it about Marxism that enables it to mount such a threat external and internal to the world which we know? The argument was presented that it appeals to the discontents, the secular discontents of the modern world. Those, those people still unable to accept the values of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution. Marxism offers them a complete and intellectually satisfying explanation of what is bugging them. What their sense of life tells them is wrong with the modern world. Since that sense of life often leads such people to feelings of resentment and aggressiveness and to thirst for destruction, Marxism offers them promises of outlets for all these and of coming to power later on comes the revolution. It builds intricate networks of the most diverse movements for what it calls, quote, social change, unquote the predominant implications of which involve the expansion of the powers of government and the dismantling of the freedoms that we have. In that first lecture, we identified the discontents as discontents, but barely touched upon the social class to which they usually belong. This is the intellectual class. I want to discuss for a few moments the place of this class or social group in the modern world in order to identify an additional motive of discontent against the freedoms of the modern world. Then I wish to pass to our final topic, the identification of the metaphysical assumptions behind the discontented or alienated and their sense of life. Marxism is in its essence a movement of intellectuals. Intellectuals form a distinct class in modern society. They may be identified by what they have to trade. What they have to trade is ideas. They create, they criticize, they manipulate ideas. By contrast, businessmen may be identified by their contribution of money capital, risk-taking, skill in organizing production, skill in marketing. The industrial worker contributes manual labor, skilled and unskilled. Now, how is the intellectual to get his product recognized and his work rewarded? In pre-capitalist society, as Hayek pointed out, he sought a patron. In capitalist society, he must market his products. With marketing, the intellectual faces a severe problem. Since what he has to sell is ideas, their value, if they have value, will be less immediately apparent, less apparent on the perceptual level, so to speak. The market does not offer such immediate rewards to the intellectual. 
the market in the short run tends to work closer to the perceptual level. Uh, yes, from the intellectual, from the standpoint in comparison with what the intellectual is offering. The curious thing is that the average intellectual tends to react to this very situation from a level hardly above the perceptual. Convinced of the value of his own work, he is frustrated, even infuriated, by the fact that others can see it right off. This engenders that hatred of the market, that longing for a return to the society of status that we see in so many intellectuals. There's more to it than this. There are many intellectuals whose main interest seems to be prestige and power. Unable to gain these things in the market, they turn to the state. Not only prestige and power, but job opportunities, whole careers are open to them by state action. Grantsmanship, you know all this business. If these careers are bureaucratic, they offer great opportunities for power to push other intellectuals around, including their rivals. But the problem is how to gain control of the state. In the 19th century, intellectuals facing this problem were a small minority. They had to find some group with whom they could forge an alliance. At least, at last, the word came from Marx. Quote, where, he asked, is the real possibility of German emancipation? We answer in the formation of a class with radical change, the proletariat. The emancipation of Germany is the emancipation of man. The head of this emancipation is philosophy. Its heart is the proletariat, unquote. Marx was a middle-class intellectual, the son of a prosperous lawyer. His father, Heinrich Marx, had emancipated himself from his Jewish past with the help of the French Revolution. Heinrich Marx was dedicated to the spread of the ideas of the tricolor, but only to the point where these meant the breaking of feudal chains and the end of religious discrimination. Heinrich Marx's life was an orderly bourgeois life which he earnestly commended in his letters to his son, asking him how come he changed his address so often, was it because creditors were after him, and so on. The son would have none of this. He wanted to be a far more consistent revolutionary as he conceived it than his father. He wanted to be a poet, a thinker, a journalist, an academic, a bohemian, and at the same time to exercise power. He sought a, f a further revolution. He turned to the workers uh, as his chosen people. But the workers could not be counted on to know when to revolt. This could be determined only by a scientific analysis of the socio-economic conditions, an analysis supplied by bourgeois intellectuals like himself. Claiming to be just these experts, Marx and his friends pushed themselves into the small workers' movement and took it over with the message of the Internationale, Arise ye prisoners of starvation, arise ye wretched of the earth. So far as we know, Marx never entered a factory. His correspondence is filled with expressions of distrust for self-educated workers who came forth with half-baked ideas for revolution. It is clear that the so-called proletarian movement was chosen by discontented and alienated bourgeois as their path to power. 
Marx and his disciples sometimes expressed their fears that successful strikes would bring pay raises which would make the workers too contented to start a revolution. That must have meant that they feared any increase in the welfare of the workers, uh, including uh, any increase that came about as the development of capitalism. The fact that capitalism had brought about such a general increase was openly admitted by the revisionist thinker Bernstein at the end of the century who gave a plea for a thoroughgoing revision of Marxist doctrines. From that time Marxism of all types began Marxists of all types began very reluctantly to abandon hopes for a workers' revolution in the advanced industrial countries of the West. The choice now was between two things, either a gradual evolution into socialism in the West, the course now followed by uh, people who, uh, socialists who are behind the welfare state in the hope that it will evolve into socialism. That's one choice. Or the other choice is a violent revolution in the undeveloped countries, Russia, China, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America and above all the latter countries lately. This revolution in the less developed countries could hardly be conducted by workers alone. They would have to have the peasants with them. So now it was a workers and peasants revolution led by, guess whom? The intellectuals. The peasants would have to be gotten into the picture by promising them land, involving the dividing up of large confiscated estates into small plots. Now these socialist intellectuals know perfectly well that agriculture on these small plots is not going to be cost efficient and the uh, workers will eventually have to be herded into collective farms uh, which they uh, uh, don't tell the workers. Intellectuals then remain leaders and actual dictators whatever the nominal agent of revolution is. In the former European colonies, they have often been, been educated in the European universities like the Sorbonne by Marxist mentors. These intellectual leaders like Ho Chi Minh have often been very able people whose families had been brutalized or humiliated by the old colonial bureaucracy. These intellectual leaders have often been ascetic in their life, implacable in their hatred, and savage in their methods. Look at Cambodia as the extreme example where about 40 intellectuals uh, took over uh, a, a whole country, massacred a million people, uh, uh, tried to return them to a, an essentially Rousseauian life. Now I'm going to quote statements of Nietzsche in his book The Joyful Wisdom or The Gay Science. Quote, be robbers and conquerors as long as you cannot be rulers and owners, you lovers of knowledge. Be robbers and conquerors as long as you cannot be rulers and owners, you lovers of knowledge. Soon the age will be passed when you could be satisfied to live like shy deer hidden in the woods. At long last, the pursuit of knowledge will reach out for its due. It will want to rule and you with it. Now, in conclusion, I come to Marxism's metaphysical assumptions, the assumptions that are at the very root of the questions it asks. I want also just to touch on the sense of life that is the preconceptual equivalent of these uh, metaphysical conclusions. 
There is a basic triad running through all of Marx's thought. The triad serves as a framework on which everything else is hung. The triad consists of a thesis, an antithesis, and a synthesis, and it goes as follows. Thesis. Man, a being rich in undeveloped potentialities, a potential Leonardo da Vinci approaches a world destined to be his oyster. But he is poor in resources. He's barely surviving. He can't even crack the oyster. The contrast is between the all-round richness of his potentialities and the poverty of his given means of production, between the rich world of imagination and cruel reality. Rousseau's quandary now comes to the fore. Life in the woods is great, but I can't eat acorns. In other words, the goods aren't here. Antithesis. Suddenly the means of production appear out of nowhere and they begin to multiply like rabbits. <laughs> now, uh, this is technics. The effective use of these techniques acquires certain adjustments. Man can no longer be the happy primitive hunting in the morning and fishing in the afternoon, etc. What is required is the division of labor accompanied by the institution of private property. Enter alienation, frustration because one cannot produce according to whim while at the same time living a guaranteed existence. But along with this great disadvantage comes an equally great advantage, a surplus product. Life gets easier and easier. The goods are now here, but we're alienated. They taste bad. This antithesis is descriptive of all stages of exploitation, above all, of capitalism. With capitalism, we hit the jackpot of productivity and alienation. In Marx's exact words, capitalism has fulfilled its, quote, historical role, unquote, of producing the goods. But we're alienated. What is to be done? Synthesize, synthesize. Synthesis. Man rich in resources, which he has expropriated and expanded indefinitely, rich also in fulfilled potentialities. Man can fulfill his potentialities in freedom from the necessity of making a living, in a guaranteed existence living from the social dividend. Man can produce ad libitum serendipitously while consuming ad libitum serendipitously. The dialectic has been completed. Underlying this triad, there are some assumptions. Marx starts from one premise that is true, namely that man is a productive being. He then adds another true premise that reason directs his productivity. At this point, he goes wildly wrong. He teaches that the es essence of reason is that it is social. This wrong premise has spread far outside Marxism and permeates contemporary sociology, anthropology, and psychology. Marx goes wrong at this point because he is blinded by the fact that reason depends on language. Reason does depend on language, but only in the sense that language is a necessary condition of reason. There are other necessary conditions. Above all, there is the condition that reason be directed volitionally. As Ayn Rand says, man is a being of volitional rationality. This is the crucial middle term. 
Not merely concept formation, but the process of inference depends on man's volition. But who can exercise volition? Only the individual. Man's volition, therefore his reason, therefore his productivity, are under the control of the individual. It is true that man is a social being, and that's very important. But this very sociality is intelligible only in the light of the concepts of cooperation and trade. In other words, exchange. Marx's attitude uh, toward exchange, of course, was uh, hostile. If Marx had a truly social con concept of man, he would have seen exchange as natural uh, to man. In a certain peculiar sense, now don't overemphasize this, uh, but there is a certain sense in which Marx is an atomic individualist. Uh, is not a man who hunts in the morning and fishes in the afternoon, isn't such a man acting autistically, all turned in upon himself, not thinking about the general effects in society? In the final stage, communism, with all, uh, communism with all the technology, what will such a man have a mind to do about midnight? Be a brain surgeon, perhaps. There is a strain of infantile, autistic, pseudo-individualism in Marxism. Marxists want to do whatever they have a mind to. But aren't Marxists collectivists? Oh, yes. Society must pick up the tab. That's where they're collectivists. Society provides the social dividend. As for the responsibility, society is responsible for everything it has created, our language, our reason, our deeds. Marxism is, in my view, an overt collectivism based on a latent, irrational pseudo-individualism. However, it is the collectivism which matters for the rest of us, because that is what the Marxists have in mind for us on the way to their paradise. The collectivism we must give them credit for being able to create. They created the totalitarian states, the fascist imitations were largely amateur jobs. Mussolini admired Lenin. Hitler in the bunker about to die expressed his admiration for Stalin. But centrally planned economy, the Marxists did not succeed in creating because it cannot be created. Now, since the Marxist ideal of socialism is the super horn of plenty, the transcendence of scarcity, since this ideal is impossible, so of course, on their own terms, is communism impossible. So the most they can produce is totalitarianism. Here, here then, is the recipe for the major organized threat to the Western world. Take a false concept of man, take a false concept of man, uh, get it widely accepted, then in the name of man, thus defined, proclaim a worldwide humanist revolution. As your failures mount, liquidate all objectors who by definition are anti-humanist and counter-revolutionary. This, I submit, is the essence of the Marxist world outlook and the Marxist revolutionary movement. Thank you.
questions? Yes. Yes, could you explain more fully what it would mean for me to speak when you know I can't even imagine how my mind would get in and your mind would figure things out? Well, you know, we're, uh, how can reason be communal? You know how any, you know, it's like a committee meeting. Uh, you know how efficient that is. Uh, no, I, I was just uh, exaggerating perhaps, but uh, reason is communal, they say, because your language has been uh, created by society and your language has built into it a certain structure uh, which leads you to think in a certain way. Think of the Navajos. You know, you know this argument. Fire isn't a thing, it's a process. And so instead of getting a burn, you're burning. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the grammatical structure is different, therefore your thought is different, therefore your inferences are different, and so on. Does that answer your question essentially? If you, answer, if you ask, how can it be in practice? Of course I can't answer that, because it can't work out that way in practice. But often in a committee meeting, you get this sort of thing. You have an attempt by one person to uh, add on to what another person has moved and to placate that person at the same time, and you have a group think, so to speak. You have a sort of intellectual, touchy-feely... Uh, uh, yeah? You said that the concept of retaliatory force and oppression or vice versa. Would you elaborate on that? Because that, that's used a lot. There police to go after muggers because it won't be necessary for muggers to mug because they'll get whatever they want free from the social surplus. What? what about the mothers who like to There'll be no market. You say, Bill? Uh, it's Mark's belief that capitalism was very productive, uh, that it really did produce all the you know, what it does. He's president. Why did he believe that when it uh, passed into the socialist state, the communist state, why did he believe that? The question is, since capitalism is so productive, why will socialism be productive? Is that right? Okay. Well, remember what he said. To what did he attribute the productiveness of capitalism? To the bureaucratic, militaristic organization within the factory by the bosses. This is the source of capitalism's productivity, according to Marx. Now then, if we organize the whole state as one big factory, with everyone being told what to do, obviously we will be that more productive, because otherwise we would be leaving it to the individual. And you see, following up on Anne's point, the... the it's not the individual who is the locus of reason because he didn't see that man is a being of volitional rationality. He saw man as a being of social rationality. You see? This gentleman. Yes, did you want to elaborate on Lenin's doctrine of materialism? No, I'm not sure I'm uh, Yes. In what 
words that Mark uh, talked about man's uh, equality and potentiality. Economic and philosophical manuscripts. Uh, he waxes most lyrical about them there. See, Marxism is not a doctrine of consumerism. It's not that they say we need to make the poor better off, we need bread and so forth for everybody. That's what they may advocate on the surface. They want their, they concentrate on the producer being able to produce whatever he wants, you know, like an artist, and then getting paid for it whether anybody wants his painting or not. This is a peculiar and strange concentration upon the alienation of the producers, not on the alienation of the consumers. Anybody on this side? Yes. Um, how do the um, presidential intellectuals usually refer to as humanists or sometimes secular humanists fit into this? Are they usually Marxist influenced? Oh, yeah. I mean, Marxist concepts have practically, to use a Marxist metaphor, entered into the very structure of our language. It's, it's hard to say good morning uh, without uh, uh, getting, uh, inadvertently using some Marxist phrase. Uh, it has permeated the whole culture. And by the way, there are some uh, contemporary intellectuals who think that we can pass into pure communism without going through the intervening stage of socialism. They think they can gradually increase the social dividend under capitalism, you see. And this will make people less and less greedy. Uh, and we don't have to go through the intermediate stage. Uh, yes. What makes them think that they can go into either socialism or communism without going through the intermediate stage of capitalism? That is to say, why don't they advocate capitalism for the third world in as much as that's necessary stage for progress? In effect, they have found out that capitalism raises the standard of living of the workers who then become corrupt and comfortable. The, remember, the, the, the Teamsters people, you know, the, uh, they're not out to overthrow capitalism, obviously. And so then in their, in their frustration, they turn to the third world, people who don't know this at all, and they promise them everything. And they hope to establish their domination into the third world and to have a north-south confrontation uh, ultimately and to finally uh, loot the uh, industrially advanced nations. Now, this gentleman here. Uh, can you discuss anything about the Paris Commune? Uh, I think that of 1871, I mean, I, I, I don't want to go into that. That's too detailed. Uh, a thing. This gentleman over here. Well, what are all these social failures? How can you explain the continuing popularity of I refer you to Arthur Mode's lecture of last night's defense mechanism. what John Ridpath said about Nietzsche. It's essentially poetry rather than responsible thinking. But in the process, they, they create a vast system of ideas, which is, in Marx's case, as von Bernbach said, genius, but it's all a house of cards. 
Now, just which defense mechanisms and so forth they use is another question which would be one of detail. Can Marx elaborate much on just what you mean? Is that their subsistence? Oh, you see, after the first surplus product comes into existence, you get suddenly a surplus population of people who need salt shots and all that. So your needs undergo uh, an evolution and exploitation makes it possible for the weaker people to survive. Now they have basic needs. The need for a salt shot, ultimately the need for psychological counseling, uh, the need for contraceptives uh, and so forth and so on, you see, uh, to, to prevent still more of a surplus population. Uh, and so that's the way in which they they uh, trace the development of basic needs into more and more complex needs. Uh, yes. Are you going to have a long time? Um, how much of theoretical Marxism and Leninism would you say still exists in the Soviet Union? And if not much, what can replace it? Well, how much theoretical Marxism-Leninism exists in the Soviet Union uh, and if not much of it, what will replace it? I'm wondering if somebody uh, who has been brought up in the Soviet Union, if there's anyone here who would be willing to answer that question from the horse's mouth. Is there anybody here? Pardon? The main theory of the structure is based on Marxist Marxist even now. What I'm saying is, is the structure of the, um, even the structure now is based on this theory of Marxism and Leninism, and this is how it goes. And they don't dare, they don't dare do anything like denationalize the means of production. They're bound by the very ideology. The ideology is what makes life intelligible for the for people as a whole, and so. Uh, even though their, their motives are maybe power-lusting or whatnot, they're, they're, they're constricted by the ideology, and there's no way to change that without some tremendous intellectual revolution. Two more. Uh, there is a group of uh, people uh, in America called the Society for Humanistic Judaism. Does the their use of the term humanism in their uh, organization name imply that they are Marxists? I do not know. I don't know the society, and uh, I don't know what they're committed to. Uh, another question? Uh, this gentleman is very direct here. Um, how seriously do you take real or alleged changes which are taking place in China now? I'm not even a mini-expert on this. Uh, I really don't know. I'm sorry. I guess... Thank you very much.